This episode was recorded on the land of the Ngunnawal and Wurundjeri peoples. I pay my respects to them, to their culture and to Elders past and present. I acknowledge their continuing connection to their culture and thank them for their contribution to our shared knowledge about birds and about land, sea and sky. Welcome to Weekend Birder. I'm your host, Kirsty Costa. I was recently walking in Churchill National Park in Melbourne on Wondery Country when I heard the familiar sound of the fantail cuckoo. An episode of Anne Jones's ABC podcast, What the Duck, blew my mind and left me with so many questions about cuckoos. So I've invited Cassandra Taylor and Claire Taylor, who aren't related but have the same last name, to join us to explain more about the cuckoos and their nesting behaviours. This is how Cassandra got into birds. When I was younger, I was involved mostly in agricultural clubs and I kept a variety of parrots and I used to travel to conferences and club meetings all around Australia, immersing myself in that world. And I dreamed of working in parrot conservation one day, like with the Spixes macaws or something like that. But um, as I got older, I sort of transitioned to loving birds in the natural setting and participating more in bird watching and bird banding. And I became curious about how birds' behaviours evolve and why birds do what they do. I am doing my PhD at Australian National University. My supervisor is Professor Naomi Langmore. Claire was uh, one of the other students in the lab with me and uh, we did our field work together. So I kind of fell into birds. Uh, I'd always loved animals and, you know, I grew up on a rural property. So I think that kind of fostered that love of animals. And I finished, was kind of finishing my science undergrad and I wanted to do honours. And I found a project with birds. It was on superb fairy wrens, which is what I still work on. And um, yeah, just the more time I spent with them, the more I kind of got interested in them and wanted to know more about them really. So I am a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Melbourne. I studied cuckoos as part of my PhD, specifically horse-filled bronze cuckoos and their interactions with their um, main host, the superb fairy wren. Cuckoos are a well-known family of birds made famous by the common cuckoo whose voice is imitated by cuckoo clocks. There are 12 species of cuckoos in Australia and they are distributed across the nation. Cassandra is here to tell us more. As a family worldwide, cuckoos have about 150 species and they're most famous for their brood parasitic behaviour. What might surprise some people is that many cuckoos around the world raise their own young and even breed cooperatively. In Australia, we actually only have only our pheasant cuckoos in the cuckoo family build a nest and raise their own young and the rest of our cuckoos are all brood parasitic so we've got all the fun ones brood parasitic means that um, a bird lays its egg in the nest of another species and allows the other species to incubate and raise their chick they have no parenting responsibilities at all so to say interestingly in australia we have both the largest and smallest cuckoo species so we have um the awesome channel build cuckoo and the gorgeous little bronze cuckoo. Uh, we're very spoilt here in Australia, I think. We've got, we've got really lovely cuckoos. In this episode, we are going to mainly focus on the Horsefield's bronze cuckoo, which both Cassandra and Claire have been researching. This species of cuckoo is found in all regions of Australia, 
except for the more dry parts and arid areas, like the Nullarbor Plain. Here is Claire's tips about how to identify the Horsefield's bronze cuckoo. If you're walking in the bush in Australia to find a cuckoo, you're way more likely to hear it than you are to see it. So cuckoos really call a lot, like a lot. Um, So Horsefield bronze cuckoos in particular have this descending whistle call, which they'll do over and over and over again. And then you'll have a little break and then it'll go again. It can always drive you mad. It's that incessant. But if you were lucky enough to see a cuckoo, then they will uh, either be sitting up perched in a tree, watching the world go by, being really secretive, or more likely they'll be um, foraging for caterpillars. So they're caterpillar specialists. They have these really beautiful iridescent green feathers on their back and their wings. And on their chest, they have this um, these horizontal stripes or what we call barring. So their chest is kind of white, but they have these dark, horizontal stripes and horsefield bronze cuckoos have this beautiful eye stripe um, which is one of the ways you can tell them apart from shining bronze cuckoos which also look very similar with the beautiful iridescent green feathers and firing across their chest. When we were first in the field before I'd seen a cuckoo every time I saw a shining I'd be like is this one is this one and eventually when we finally did see a horsefields my first thought was is that it's like a desaturated version of a shining. Looks like someone's taken a shining a picture of a shining bronze cuckoo and photocopied it. It's like slightly faded and not quite as distinct as the shining. Even its barring is a little bit less crisp, and that's how I remember them now. I also tell the horse fields bronze cuckoo apart by looking at its throat, which is mottled or plain in colour compared to the barred throat of other cuckoos. Sometimes I get it confused with the black-eared cuckoo, so keep an eye out for the horsefield's rufous orange-brown coloured tail. When I hear the call of cuckoos in Victoria, I know that the weather must be getting warmer. Claire says this is because they migrate between southern Australia and northern Australia, Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. The general wisdom is that cuckoos are somewhere warmer for winter. So we think that they move inland or north as they're getting ready for breeding, they move kind of more towards the coast. And when they find a a density of hosts that's high enough, uh, they stop and they look for a mate. And this is where things get interesting. Many cuckoos are famous for being what is called a brood parasite. This is where a female lays her egg in a nest that isn't hers, so another bird can raise her chick as their own. And Claire says that this behaviour is seen in birds across the world. There's heaps of um, different types of brood parasites in the world. African honey guides and uh, vita finches in Africa. We have cowbirds in America. We have a type of duck in South America um, and cuckoos in Australia. And so these are all different types of brood parasites. They all put their eggs in the nests of um, another species in most of those instances or in the case of the duck in the same species. And so this this um, breeding strategy has evolved um, independently in all of these different species. So we don't really know why they do it. We don't really know, but we do know that there must be some advantages to it for it to have evolved so many times. Interestingly, there are also fish and insects that are brood parasites. Well, congratulations, you now know a scientific word that you can use at a dinner party to impress your friends and sound really smart. Here are two others that you're about to hear. Host is the name given to a bird who owns the nest that the cuckoo wants to lay its egg in. 
Parasitize is the act of the cuckoo laying its egg in that nest. So to put these words into action for you, in this episode we're focusing on the Horsefield's bronze cuckoo. That's a brood parasite. The host tends to be a superb fairy wren or thornbill. And parasitize is when the Horsefield's bronze cuckoo goes and lays its egg in the nest of a superb fairy wren or thornbill. Claire says that people think that cuckoos have it really easy, that all they have to do is pop their egg into another bird's nest and another bird will do all the parenting for them. But being a cuckoo is harder than it sounds. We think that the male cuckoo sets up camp and it tries you know, to attract a female by calling a lot. And that female um, might join that male and then parasitize or parasitize all of the nests that she can find in that area. And once she's done that, she might then move on. She might leave that male who will stay and wait for another female cuckoo to come. But, um, you know, we think to risk putting multiple eggs in the same nest, she might then move on to another breeding site and uh, find another male there and, you know, start, start again. So many things have to go right for you to be successful and not many of them are in your control. You have to migrate to an area where there's a mate and you have to find enough of your host species that you can lay an egg every second day because cuckoos, uh, we don't know, we don't really know how big their clutches are, but they need to lay an egg every second day. So you have to find enough hosts and a mate, and then you also have to sneak your egg into the nest. So you have to be able to uh, wait until the host kind of is not around, and then sneak your egg into the nest. Um, and then you have to hope that the um, hosts don't reject it. So your egg has to either mimic. Um, the hosts or have some other form of um, not being able to be found. Horsefields like to lay in fairy wren nests. Fairy wrens are their primary hosts. They're the number one birds they like to use as hosts. They can't find a fairy wren nest at the right time when they're ready to lay. They will lay in a thornbill nest if they have to. And a thornbill is a secondary host. So they use them sometimes and regularly enough that they can recognize a thornbill and a thornbill host and all those things. But um, primarily they will always choose a wren if they can. As a cuckoo, if you are successful in laying your egg in another bird's nest, how do you know that your cuckoo chick will survive? Cassandra says that the answer to this question is both fascinating and slightly creepy. They all do something a bit different, but the horse fields, when they hatch, manage to get the egg up onto their back and using their, they're only like 24 hours old or less. They're very alien looking and they, their little wing knobs like hold it and they back up over uh, and push the egg up, keep the egg between them and the nest wall as they back up and then they manage to push it out of the hole and they do that probably uh, three times to get rid of or two or three times depending on how many eggs the fairy wren still has in the nest. This is something uh, that they've never seen, they've never been taught. No cuckoo ever has been shown or taught. This is purely shaped by evolution over millions of years, which is really, really cool. And if you were weirded out by what Cassandra just described there are other species of brood parasites who are even more nasty. Here's Claire with more info. So we know that African honey guides hatch with this hook on the end of their bill, and that's so that they can stab the host's young, their nest mates, to make sure that they're the sole occupant of the nest because that then causes their nest mates to die and they're removed by the parents. So this is another way that, that um, brood parasites can use to uh, be the sole occupant of the nest. But we also know that there are other um, brood parasites that are less virulent, so they're kind of nicer to to their hosts. So, uh, for example, um, American cowbirds can be raised in the same nest as as their hosts, and usually um, the young also fledge the nest as well as the cuckoo. 
I don't know about you, but I'm left wondering if hosts realise that the chick that they are feeding is actually not theirs, but is a cuckoo. Claire says that the cuckoo chick appearance helps to fool their adopted parent. So cuckoos generally are in the nest longer than the host young would be. I think because they require extra feeding, they have to grow a lot more than the host young do. And it does seem crazy that um, the parents don't recognize that something is wrong. I've seen cuckoos where essentially they're kind of growing out of the nest because they're almost too big to fit in it anymore. But one thing to know is that they look a little bit different when they're chicks than they do when they're adults. So when they're adults, as I was saying, they have this beautiful iridescent green feathers. But when they're chicks, they're kind of more dull and gray and they kind of start developing this barring and their iridescent feathers as they age. And so that might be one reason why they don't recognize them as much. But yeah, there becomes a point where they do look like cuckoos and you kind of wonder how the hosts don't know. When a horse field hatches in a fairy wren nest, it mimics a fairy wren begging call. But when it's laid in a thornbill nest, it doesn't quite elicit the right response from the thornbills because it's doing its fairy wren begging call and the thornbills are a bit confused about what's going on with their chick. Um, and so the cuckoo, again, like only 24 hours, 48 hours old, uh, it starts to vary its call because it recognizes it's not getting 100% of the attention and it adapts the call to what the thornbills respond to um, and ends up mimicking a thornbill begging call. The really cool thing to highlight here is that no cuckoo chick has ever heard a thornbill begging call or a fairy wren begging call. And yet through millions of years of evolution, they've shaped this incredibly intricate response to being fed. And I love that. Cuckoos are able to elicit responses from birds that aren't even their host parents. So when birds have fledged, but they're still being fed by the host, uh, sometimes if they're begging hard enough, loud enough, long enough, another bird will just come along and feed them. It's sort of incredible how they're able to elicit this response. So clever. You might be thinking, poor superb fairy wrens and thornbills. These hosts are victims to the egg-laying behaviours of the horsefield's bronze cuckoo. Claire has found, though, that the hosts have some ways to defend their nests. So there are several lines at which the host can have defences. So they can either be defend against their um, cuckoos, as, as Cass was saying, as frontline defences of like trying to be strategic in where they place their nests or trying to mob the cuckoo to begin with so they get scared off and aren't able to lay their egg or detect their egg or detect their chick. Um, so there's heaps of different lines of defence that hosts have against cuckoos. Yeah, it's actually really hard to be a brute parasite. As a host, you want to be able to detect and reject a cuckoo egg. So you want to be able to abandon your nest and kind of cut your losses before this cuckoo can hatch and push the babies out of the nest. And so what I looked at was if cuckoos can adapt their egg size to the climate to be beneficial, or if there's this really strong selection pressure from the host, which means that they aren't able to do this. So we know that Superb fairy wrens can adapt their egg size to the climate, so the temperature and the rainfall, um, and also how many helpers there are to raise the babies. And we also know that cuckoos generally produce a really small egg size for their body size because cuckoos are quite a bit larger than fairy wrens. So cuckoos are about 17 grams, whereas fairy wrens are about 9 grams. So they're almost double the size. And this means that they have to produce this really small egg to be able to fool the hosts into looking after their their young. So I wanted to look at if cuckoos are able to still adapt their egg size, but we found that the selection pressure from these hosts 
was too great. So we found that superb friends are more likely to uh, abandon cuckoo eggs that were short and round than those that were long and thin, which means that they are putting up heaps of selection pressure on these cuckoo eggs to kind of uh, change their morphology to not be detected by their hosts. There's a very strong selection pressure for hosts to evolve defences, and that's because the cost of brood parasitism is so high So our, our horse fields that we've been loving talking about today. When they lay their egg in a fairy wren nest, they take one of the host's eggs, and so they've already reduced the clutch by one, but then they're also pretty sneaky in that they choose their timing very well when they're going to lay the egg in the nest and this ensures that the cuckoo hatches before the rents and then what the cuckoo does with his extra time is um, evict all of the eggs out of the fairy wren's nest so the fairy wren loses her whole clutch Um, and this sort of ensures that all the fairy wren's provisioning activities are funneled to the one chick to the cuckoo and so if a fairy wren is usually lucky to have one successful fully fledged nest in a season and if that's lost entirely to brood parasitism then we can imagine that evolution will be working really strongly um, and favoring any bird who can avoid parasitism at any cost. So um, I'm sort of looking at what hosts can do with their nests to try and just prevent parasitism altogether and this sort of defense is called a frontline defense and it's things birds do to avoid uh, being parasitized at all. Cassandra and Claire have done most of their cuckoo research at Campbell Park in Canberra on Yunnawal country. This woodland is next door to Mount Ainsley and is filled with a range of birds. Cassandra says that it's also her favourite place to go birdwatching. It's got a very special place in my heart, I think, because um, uh, it's where I learnt um, most of the bird calls that I know. It's where I came to appreciate such a large variety of the small woodland birds can be hard to see sometimes or you don't get to see a lot of because um, we spent seven days a week for, you know, four, four to six months of the year outside with those birds. Um, I felt like I came to know Campbell Park really well and it, and, and all its birds and uh, it's got a great diversity of, of species. And, um, yeah, I just uh, often if I go out bird watching now, uh, still 50% of the time I'll return to Campbell Park rather than explore somewhere new just because... Um, you never know what you're going to see that day. And a lot of the sort of rare vagrants that come to Canberra, they seem to stop into Campbell Park. So uh, you, you, you get surprised there as well. It's, it's really lovely. What I love about working at a field site for kind of five months a year is I get to see how it changes. And at the moment, there's still flame robins and scarlet robins around, which are really beautiful. But they'll soon leave to go up into the mountains to breed. But that means that it's um, time for cuckoos to arrive and time for white-winged trillers and heaps of different migratory species to start arriving. So I love that there's this difference, you know, the coming and going of migratory birds, which means things are always changing. You've now got a new spot to visit next time you're in Canberra. Many thanks to Cassandra and Claire for taking the time to speak to us during their busy cuckoo research schedule. I think I've become a better birdwatcher after learning more about cuckoos. In fact, I will never hear a cuckoo's call in the same way again. Thank you to listeners John, Georgia, Penny and Aaron for requesting this Weekend Birder topic. You can drop by the Weekend Birder website anytime or send a message on social media to suggest a topic that you're interested in. In the next episode, we're going to explore the world of birds, trees and rainbow bee eaters. Speak to you then.